You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Dr. Michael Gervais, one of the world's top high performance psychologists who has worked directly with people like Felix Baumgartner who famously jumped from space during the Red Bull Stratus mission, the NFL Seattle Seahawks, NBA players, Olympians, military personnel, corporate leaders and many many other high performers. Today on the show you're going to hear all about Michael's work with Felix Baumgartner and the high-performance psychology secrets that helped him build up the courage to jump from space. Not only that, you are going to hear about tools and techniques to help you master whatever your craft is and operate as a high performer. Now, before we get into that, I just want to let you guys know that today's episode is sponsored by Vibe. Vibe produce a product that I use every single day. When you are living a busy life, when you are between meetings, when your mornings are jam-packed, you're trying to fit your morning routine in, produce high-quality work, you don't always have time to cook a healthy, nutritious meal. Well, with Vibe, I'm able to make myself a nutritionally complete meal shake in 30 seconds that provides me with 29 grams of protein, 26 vitamins and minerals, complex carbs, essential fats, and added ingredients such as probiotics and nootropics to promote a healthy gut and brain. It's the perfect way for me to make sure I'm taking care of my nutrition, getting in everything I need, and it's gonna take me right the way up till lunchtime, safe in the knowledge that I've taken care of my nutritional goals. And you can too, all you have to do is use the code FREEDOM for 15% off at Vibe, that's V-Y-B-E-Y.co.uk or vibe.com.au. Once again, that's V-Y-B-E-Y.co.uk. Use the code FREEDOM for 15% off. Now, on with today's episode. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Freedom Pack podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So looking forward to it. So I want to get all these guys listening and watching um, who may not be familiar with your work, may not be familiar with the topic of mastery or high performance. Just to give them some context, you have worked with extremely high performers. You've worked with the elite. Who comes to mind that you've worked with that embodies the meaning of true mastery? Who comes to mind right now? Ah, it's, it's such a good question. So um, I'm going to answer it with a, a bit of context, is that by trade and trading, I am a sport and performance psychologist. And so the way that I tend to look at mastery is uh, twofold. One, it is mastery of craft, but I'm more interested in mastery of self. And I'm most interested in the intersection between both mastery of self and mastery of craft. So the, the, the folks that come to mind for me um, 
Uh, one is Felix Baumgartner. And so Felix Baumgartner, if folks are not familiar with him, he was a gentleman who jumped from the edge of space in a project that was called Red Bull Stratos, and meaning stratosphere. And so it, it was an amazing project. He ran right to the edge of his capabilities. Um, he was forced to adapt and adjust and build new skills that um, were required, new psychological skills for him that were required. And it was just incredible. It was a team effort. And um, he's one for sure that comes up. There's so many others. Um, Kerry Walsh Jennings was a, a five-time Olympian, four-time medalist in women's beach volleyball for the United States of America. And um, she did something extraordinary as well. As she was the best in the world at her craft, yet had sacrificed her family. And that's an, that is not an uncommon theme for many of the best in the world, is that they're so committed to being their very best, to being sometimes the best in the world, that oftentimes there's a bit of a wake of destruction or an ignoring that takes place for the family. So what she did is she said, listen, going into my last Olympics, I want to do it, quote unquote, right. I want to be my best, which I believe is the best, and I want to have a great relationship for the four years of training with my family. And so those two things, I think, those two people they, they, they hold big space for me. And I, you know, there are so many others that maybe are listening to this podcast now that I've had the chance to work with. They go, what about me? And I go, man, each person holds like a dear heart, a dear space in my heart. Well, this is something I wanted to ask you a little bit later on, but seeing as you, you've brought them up, I'd love to dive right into it right here. You mentioned Felix Baumgartner there, and this is a question you've probably been asked a million times, but the reason I ask it is because I believe that the answer is a really great way for people to understand where psychology comes into play in high performance. And the question is, um, if you could explain how your involvement with Felix Baumgartner came about and at what point along his journey he needed you. Okay, that's really cool. And so let me add one more contextual bit of information. I love reference points and context to try to better understand anything in life. And so one more bit of context is that I said earlier, sport and performance psychology. So I'm classically trained as a psychologist, but the subspecialty is in consequential environments, which means that when people make mistakes, the most dire consequences can take place. doesn't mean that they will, but they can take place. So Felix Baumgartner and the Red Bull Stratus program certainly is one of the most consequential environments um, that I've, I've worked in. And let's just ground it. it I, I spent time with Red Bull High Performance, kind of the origin story of, of their building of their high performance program. And I was uh, able to work with some extraordinary people for about a decade in the Red Bull athletic space. And it was about four years into the Red Bull Stratus project where Felix called the team. I was not part of the team at this point. Felix called uh, his team and he was in the airport and he was breaking down. And I say that with quote unquote, because he was breaking through. We just didn't know it at the time. And he was crying in the airport. And this is all public. Um, there was many documentaries done about this. And uh, he's crying in the airport saying, hey, team, I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. I, I just can't take another step forward. And um, it's too much for me. And 
fear had overridden his ability to manage the duress and the stress and the pressure, which is a normal thing for anybody that's trying to push right to the edges of their capabilities. And in this case, it was the edge of human capabilities. This makes sense. This happens. <laughs> this is part of it. And um, there is <laughs> there is no pushing limits without getting to a limit. And so the team goes, right, okay, so let's find the right resource here. And they introduced me to the uh, to Felix. Um, Felix and I had a good, converse, good conversation about what he really wanted. And he wanted to go forward, even if it meant him dying. He just didn't have the ability to deal with that pressure. And um, of course, nobody wants to die. But it was like um, great clarity that walking away this way was not the way he wanted to um, complete this project. So then uh, he and I are like, okay, well, I think we can do some work here. And we presented this option to the full team. And the full team was some of the hardened most, uh, I mean, some of the greatest um, aerospace engineers and test pilots in the world. And they clearly looked at me like I had five heads and they said, look, we do not, we don't know about this psychology thing. <laughs> you know, these are, this is the old guard, right? And they're like, we don't know, like all due respect to your profession. And um, we just don't want blood on our hands. And we've never seen somebody come back from this type of emotional reaction to being in a capsule. And so that was his fear is the sense of claustrophobia because he had to be basically in a, in a um, what you would see an, an astronaut in that type of suit. Uh, for five to six hours, and he had to be in a pressurized capsule for five to six hours. And it was this feeling of being out of control and claustrophobia was the triggering for, for his fear and stress response. So they said, listen, no, no, um, no disrespect, but never seen anyone come back from it. And um, we do not want blood on our hands because you convinced him or you've, you know, and I'm like, listen, that's not what the science of psychology is. This is not about motivation. This is not about convincing or some sort of dark art to kind of twist his mind to actually stay in the capsule. It's not that. It's a basic psychological skills building and basic um, principles that he can work from to build those skills. And I can get into what psychological skills mean in just a minute. So they said, um, said, but we'll, we'll give this a shot as long as he can do the things that we need him to do in a low-pressure environment on the ground. So in other words, he has to be in a suit for six hours on the ground, where up until that point, he couldn't be in it for longer than five minutes. So game on. So we go to work. We use really good science, which is uh, the science of systematic desensitization, also known as flooding. And essentially, it's like give somebody the right tools to be able to manage themselves in a stepwise approach of stress. So you start working these psychological skills in low pressure and then work it all the way up to high pressure. And then you take a leap into the condition that you actually need to think clearly in. Okay, so that's how we do all, all skill development, whether it's sport, we start free throw shooting in a calm environment. And then we put free throw shooting, you know, with a little bit more heart, elevated heart rate and free throw shooting practice, you know, with like some sort of stakes on the line. And then we're better at it when it's game time. So we do that skill development for physical and technical skills. This is no different. This is just psychological skills building. We deploy it 
Um, and he cracked it. He did it. He did the thing in low pressure environments, meaning he was in the suit in the capsule for five plus hours. Um, you know, champagne and beer were flowing right after that. It was a major milestone. Then they took him to the next level, still in the ground, but in a pressurized capsule, which if you make mistakes there, getting your, he was responsible for managing his oxygen and, and gas exchange. And if you make a mistake there, things can go wrong pretty quickly. He did it there. So again, you know, uh, champagne and cocktails after that, it was a, it was a nice moment of celebration. And at, in my mind, he had all, he had extinguished his fear. And so the day of the actual launch, which was about four years later, um, he had extinguished this fear that he had of being claustrophobic. And it was just basically at that point, it was a celebration of, of uh, all that he has achieved. So that, that was kind of the arc in the narrative. I inserted um, my um, science and, and contributions about four years into the seven or eight year cycle. And I wonder what the sort of experience and challenge was like from, well, both you guys' perspective, because, you know, you've, you've worked with, with people at the very top level of what they do. But those are situations where there are case studies to draw from. There are previous examples. There's almost blueprints out to get, you know, if you are a footballer playing in the Champions League final, for example, hundreds have done it before. But this was a situation where he was literally reaching new frontiers. Nobody had done this before. There was no blueprint to fall back on. There were no examples to draw from. What was that challenge like? Because now you're working at the not just the top 1%, you're talking the 0.0001% of something no yeah, one's ever yeah. done. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'll borrow a philosophy from Bruce Lee of all people, which I think Bruce Lee is very special. And um, no form to break form, no structure to break structure. In other words, the idea is to be so grounded in science that you can know where you need to break free from um, the confounds of what worked in a laboratory and what need is required to work on the frontier. And so you need to know your forms so you can break forms and create something net new. You need to know basic structures so that you can break those structures. You need to know the grounded science so that you can create and add to the body of science. And that's what we did. We used grounded science and then there was moments where I was like, oh shit, it, it's not working the way that you know it's held up before. So he and I were partners in it and we had to figure it out as we go. And so um, full informed you know, dialogue about this science isn't holding up, that science is, I think we need to add and tweak this and form it. And so it basically is um, this idea that we all individually are a work in progress. We are a working laboratory in and, of, in and of, of ourselves. And we only get one physical go that we know about, at least. There are people that believe in reincarnation, of course. My orientation is I get one physical shot at this thing and I want to live it to my fullest and I want to be connect, connected and partnered with people that are wanting that same for themselves and their loved ones. So there's just a partnership that takes place and there's deep trust, like, I'm sorry for using locker language here, but like that shit doesn't come easily. You know, it keeps you up at night when you are truly working on the frontier, knowing that when things go wrong, 
somebody that you care about that they've trusted you, it could be over. And we need people like Felix. We need people like Luke Akins, who calls me up and says, Mike, I want to jump from 30,000 feet. And that's kind of where airliners um, jump from. And he says, but I want to do it differently. I want to jump without a parachute. And I want to land into a 16-story net that I want to build with, you know, with my team. You know, he says, are you in? <laughs> and instantly, like, that's a yes or that, – that is a binary outcome. Either he hits the net or he doesn't hit the net. And it's if he doesn't hit the net, game over. From 30,000 feet, terminal velocity, game over. If he does hit the net, we're still not sure if he's going to make it. We don't know if the net will hold. <laughs> we don't even know if he'll hit the net for first part. We don't know if the net will hold. We don't know if he'll break his back. We don't, we don't, you know, there's so many variables there. And then, you know, are, are, are you in? That basically means, are you willing to lose sleep? Are you willing to risk love? You know, are you willing to, to be part of this um, edge pursuing um, project? And so those men and women that are pushing the frontier of human potential, some do it in physically challenging environments and others don't, but we need them. We need them to show us and remind us of what we are capable of. We need the Alex Hanolds of the world to demonstrate what full command of craft and mind means. We need the Luke Akins and that project, if you want to look that up, was, uh, it was live on TV, actually. It was called Heaven Sent. And so we need them to show us and remind us and, and be a beacon force, reminding us that there's so much more that we are capable of. Most of us have no idea what we're capable of. And we hear that word living to our potential, and we hear the word like you've got so much potential. And it becomes a bit overwhelming because it's hard to know what one's potential is. And so it feels like we're falling short of that because if you're not day in and day out, fundamentally pushing up against the edge of your capabilities and then finding high water to recover and then getting in the deep rapids again of your limits and then finding high, wa high water, I'm sorry, high ground to recover, you will never know. And I will never know what I'm capable of. So let me just kind of round this inside out here. I can hear in my own head, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> but um, round this inside out is that, or this inside out is that the professional athletes and those that are pushing the limits, whether it's in mathematics or um, history or navigation or, or uh, adventure sports is that they have fundamentally made some decisions in their life and they have fundamentally committed organizing their life toward that. And if we want to drop down from those extreme consequential environments to like high pressured, rugged environments of uh, athletics, professional stick and ball sport, is that they have fundamentally committed their life to get to the edge. Now that edge is not dangerous. It's rugged, if you will, it's pressure packed, but they practice getting to the edge with public scrutiny with private scrutiny and practice from their peers and their coaches to be judged, to be critiqued, to be examined, to be investigated, to be challenged. And most of us could not handle that. We think that like, 
they're gifted, they're talented, which many of them are, but they've been, they've had their knuckles on the grindstone for years, pushing right up against their limits emotionally and physically and mentally in some cases every day. And so I, they look at us and think we're a little crazy because we sit inside all day long and, you know, we sit in chairs all day long and, you know, we talk about what it takes and then we write emails and, you know, they, they look at us and think we're absolutely have lost our way and there can't be a good life in the way that we're doing. And we look at them like, oh shit, you guys are, you know, off your rocker and it's somewhere probably in the middle, you know, it's probably somewhere in the middle. But the, the point I want to make is this, it's so rich to think about of making a set of fundamental commitments in one's life and then fundamentally committing towards them. That's all. That's real to me. That's very inspiring. And so I'll, I'll pause there. I just get fired up. Sorry. Uh, no, I love it, man. And I, and I was just going to add on to that, that you mentioned there and you talk about the, 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 the pressure on these guys um, that uh, with, with, with the stakes that are at play with, with Felix, for example, and that you would have felt some pressure for the outcome there, but even if the outcome, even if Felix had never gone, I guess, and there was an immense pressure on you because at this point, um, there's so much money, time, resources gone into this project. And if, if ultimately, if you can't get Felix to the point where he's ready to go up, then Red Bull, they, they've had a serious outlay. So you must have had to tap into your own psychology, your own high performance. Yeah, it, and it was a team. And I was honored to be part of that team and nobody acts independently on the team. A matter, matter of fact, like that's, I think one of the really important insights about how the extraordinaries work and how the best in the world operate independent of craft, you know, whether it's business and or sport or arts is that nobody does it alone. Even like if you're thinking about a golfer or a singles tennis player or whatever, nobody does it alone. They have teams, and and if we don't share the success, that too is a failure. And so, um, even if you get the gold medal, but you're not sharing the success and and you're not feeling part of the team, like you're better than or bigger than, that is a failure. And so, um, when purpose drives the show, we all have a place to to participate. When performance drives the show, that can also that statement can also hold up. But not everybody gets to perform in the way that is recognized, but that doesn't mean that we're not performing, to your point earlier. And then I, I think that the, the real gift in any project that is forward-facing and you know, frontier-pushing is to make sure that your purpose is aligned with that purpose and to fully pour yourself into it. And yeah, shit's on the line, you know, for sure. And I would also say, like, for my community that... Um, you know, Finding Mastery has has been a blessing. Uh, the Finding Mastery podcast and community is like they hold me to the a highest standard, and I want to hold them to it as well. And there's people in the community that are struggling. There's people that are suffering, and it's like I just want to I want to do two things. I want to give you a hug and say I know that feeling. I I know what that's like, and I, I quickly want to give you like a dull stick in your back. Like, come on, come on. You know, face yourself, get to know yourself, study yourself, you know, take action toward what it takes to feel free as a human. 
you must study yourself. You must meet yourself. You must face that dragon, go into the lion's den. I'll mix all these metaphors to know that dark part that's holding you back so that you can be free. And it starts with small actions that we can all take. And I, I would love to get into some of those small actions, but it's a hug through support. And then it's a challenge with a dull stick in their back. Like, let's fucking go now. Because we only, I don't know, mate, I don't know how much longer I have. And neither do you, neither does my wife or my family members. So let's, let's make today the best possible way that we possibly can. And my personal philosophy in life is that every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. So I'm about it with you right now, you know? And so um, if I could turn the table for just a moment, because it's not a one-way street here, it's like, why are you building a community and why are you so fascinated about high performance? Like what, what is that scratching for you? I mean, for me, I mean, this whole podcast started um, when me, and my co-host, we, we, we left university and we were in a, we were in a place where neither of us really knew what we wanted to do. You, you mentioned purpose there. We really didn't have any sort of purpose. We were both in jobs we hated. And it sort of led us to this personal development world about high performance, bettering yourself, um, you know, finding meaning in what you do, finding purpose in what you do. And we started meeting up regularly and reading these books, you know, and, and, and listening to podcasts and, 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 you know, guys in this space like yourself and discussing these ideas back and forth. And we thought to ourselves, like we, it took us a while to find this information. And if we can sort of take this information and, give it to the people who need it, who may not know it even exists yet. That sort of lit a fire under the two of us. And that's why we jumped into this world. And I think with topics like high performance now, I'm just so driven on, you know, really getting into the nitty gritty, finding those details and sort of giving the, so getting the information from the people who have it like yourself and giving it to the people who need it. And I think that's what drives me. That's what drives this podcast. And, that's what's up. I, I, dude, I love that. And I think that I hear that last bit, which is like giving it to people who need it. And then my, my antenna perks, which is, um, takes me back to when I was 15. And I'll, I'll, I'll share that insight in just a moment. But I think that people, there's a difference between people who want it and people who need it. And I'm not so sure that um, those worlds collide very easily. And so I, I wonder if that, if thinking about people who want it is different for you than people who need it. And um, I made that, I made that uh, decision early on is like, I only want to, I only want to spend time with people that like, we've got a similar energy and a similar kind of purpose and passion. And it's to try to bring people along that don't really want it, but do need it. I, I'm, I am terrible at it. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand. And there are better people you know, uh, that are more highly skilled in that area than I am. And um, so I, I don't understand it. So I wonder how you, how um, I want to learn from you. Is it about people that need it or people that want it? I, I think I, I can only reflect on my own experience and, and when it found me, it, it, it came to me, not because I wanted, it. I wasn't seeking it out. It was a very organic process mm. for me. Um, I, I, I didn't necessarily want the information, but it sort of fell on my lap at a time where I was, probably at my lowest. And I think that's mm. why it had such an impact on me. I really did need 
this information, you know, to be in this personal development space. And I think that that's why it's had such an impact on me that it came oh, that's, to me at a point in yeah. my life when I really was desperate for it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And when you're saying that is, are we talking like uh, the dark places of suicide or was it like a depression or was it highly anxious? Highly anxious and they were... Yes, there were a lot of very low points um, coming out of, like I said, coming out of university, realizing that I was in a place I, I really didn't want to be in. I didn't have any real motivation to wake up in the morning. Um, so everything was a struggle. Getting to my job was a struggle. Getting through the yeah. day was a struggle. Um, so they were like real, real low moments. And, you know, that's where the comparison started coming and you start looking at other people your age, what they're doing you know, com mm. comparing yourself to everyone and everything. And I was at, a, I would say that was my lowest point. And then when this fell on my lap and it gave me a sense of purpose, all of a sudden I'd wake up in the morning and the first thing I would think about is this project that gave me so much purpose and yeah, sort of transformed everything for me. So that, I see myself in what you just said is like, that's when I was 15. I had that same type of like, oh man, like, Jeez, like I like I, I was I struggled through uh, late high school and college, and um, I wish that I would have had access like you were providing access to people um, at that age, and I didn't. And the the field of sports psychology was just emerging, and I didn't find it until I was like twenty something. Thank God, I, like honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know. The world does not need a twenty year old Mike Gervais. Like, let's be clear. So, um, all that being said, is that thing that you talked about is like comparison and you know that relationship with others and the performance identity piece i just spent the last two years researching that and if i if i could just share this without being um tasteless the the two years turned into um well actually the way it started is i wrote a uh, a blog on harvard business review and they called me 12 months later and it was on this very topic and they said hey uh <laughs> you were the most downloaded downloaded article on Harvard Business Review for the last 12 months, can we turn this into a book? And I was like, oh, sh damn, like bad timing. <laughs> like I love, thank you, but really bad timing. Like I'm, I'm neck deep in some projects. And so 12 months later, they, they call back and they said, you did it again. <laughs> you did the 24 months. You were uh, the number one downloaded podcast. Like, well done. I'm sorry, the number one downloaded article. Well done. Can we do a book? I said, yeah, <laughs> now's a great time. So I went two years into the cave to research that, like, what is the greatest constrictor to one's potential? And what I came up with, or came out with, I should say, I was thinking like I came up from uh, below water, is that I think the greatest constrictor, or one of the greatest constrictors, I'll leave room for, for, uh, for space, uh, for um, more, is that it is fear of people's opinions is one of the greatest constrictors of human potential. And cleverly, we call it FOPO, right? And we think that this is like the thing. It's like the water that we drink. It's the air that we breathe. It is something that most people don't quite realize that that is the real struggle that they're feeling. And we've tied that to our ancient brain trying to solve modern day problems, the ancient brain is highly tuned to getting kicked out of the tribe. And so we're constantly checking others to see if we're accepted or near rejected. And that, that, that 
primal tuning is created a condition for us to fear other people's opinions, evidenced by one of the greatest fears of, of all of humans um, is, is not like danger in a dark alley, it's public speaking. And the only thing at stake in public speaking is that somebody might reject you. Somebody might have an opinion that's unfavorable. So this idea of FOPO being one of the great constrictors of human potential, I'm so excited about it. Uh, we cracked that book with Harvard Business Review. It's coming out November 7th. When I read the title of the book, it really, really struck a chord with me. Um, stop, yeah, the first rule of mastery, stop caring about what other people think because longtime listeners of this show will know I have long said that this is the number one killer of dreams um, because I've given the example countless times on this show that I tried starting a podcast four years before I started this. I started one in university. I recorded a little, it wasn't personal development uh, based, but I recorded a little episode. It was around um, uh, sports and I put it out on YouTube and no one listened. And I, you know, I put another one out and then I woke up one day in my university shared house and I noticed my group chat was exploding, the house group chat. And one of my housemates had found it on YouTube. And, you know, I was, as university boys, I was receiving a lot of banter, um, you know, uh, and I just really shut down. I, I deleted the video. I closed the channel. I thought, I, I, you know, I can't be dealing with this level of scrutiny. I didn't touch podcasting for another four years until I started this. And now I think to myself, if I am where I am now and I had an extra four years on top of it, I, I, I just can't help but think, where could I be now? Yeah, right. I mean, at that type of circling back around is a probably a fruitless exercise, you know, like you are here, you're cracking it, you're, you know, and like, and you needed some sort of uh, experiences to get here. And I, I would, I would sharpen one word too, which is, um, it's not about not caring about what people think, it's how to stop worrying. And it's the excessive worry about it. And so FOPO is really this preemptive worry machination about, well, what if, what will they you know, how does it go wrong? What, and this is not about, I think we need to care about what people think, but not excessively worry. And like, there's really deeply valuable information that other people hold. And if we're not going to entertain that, I think we, we become muted in our potential, but it's this excessive worry that I think is the culprit. And, um, and so we, you know, we outline in the, in the research or the book, sorry, um, the the fast track on ramps to FOPO and then the off ramps, like how to get off of this circular thing. So um, I'll send you I'll send you a copy um, as soon as we get some of the advanced copies. I'll send you one over. I, I hope hopefully it uh, strikes a chord for you. Very very generous. I look forward to it. So in terms of you know not to give too much of the book away, but for those people mm. out there now that. They may have dreams. They may have goals. They they know what they want to do, but they're too scared of you know what other people think, and 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 that's holding them back. Where do they start? What is the first step? I, I think the first step is just recognizing that I'm paying too much attention to what people think of me, and it's not like my big goal, bold ambitions, but it's like what am I choosing to wear, 
and how am I choosing to present myself at a cocktail party or, you know, like, am I, am I heightened to the way I walk into a yoga studio or fitness studio about how they might be thinking about me? So it's this, it's this more subtle art than it is the big grand thing. And so first is just recognize that we all have it at what degree is it playing a role in your world and then pay attention to it in small ways. And then once you are like, oh, this is it. Like, look, I'm actually paying attention to what they might be thinking of me. And then you can make an informed decision. Like, is this, is this good for me? Or is this pulling me away from the art of the moment? Is this pulling me away from focusing better at lifting a weight, dropping a weight, uh, whatever the exercise might be, being in a conversation. And it's this subtle art of hello and goodbye. So this is where mindfulness plays dividends as a practice. It's been around 2,600 years. The science is legit. It's very exciting. Um, and so first is awareness and then practicing increasing awareness, which is mindfulness. And then the second, um, the, 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 I'm sorry, the work in mindfulness is to recognize when your mind wanders from the one thing that you're focusing on and then exercising the skill of refocusing back to the present moment. So that would be a couple of things, like just be honest, like, is this a thing for you? Find it in small moments, re rework your mind back to the, to the task at hand. And then as a parallel path, commit to some sort of mindfulness approach because that is increasing awareness and also providing um, controlled or structured sitting your ass on a pillow moments to uh, practice refocusing. When I was talking to my co-host about um, the fact that you were coming on the show, he got very excited because, and he was telling me that one of his favorite things he's ever heard you talking about is the importance of feeling every emotion. And the question that, that comes to mind is how can we learn to feel every emotion without ever getting lost in the emotion. Oh, that's that's a really cool thought. That that there's some insight there that's worth noting. Um, okay, so when you ask people like, "What do you want in life?" Most people say, "I want to be happy," and that's cool. There's a science to happiness, so you know we can actually practice getting better at happiness. That, that that's actually not quite that's not complicated there. However, it's like saying, "I just want to experience one emotion." So on the double click kind of smart aleck comment is like, when your grandmother dies, do you want to be happy there too? It's like most people say, no, I don't, I don't want to walk into a funeral happy. Um, I want to feel it. I want to feel the loss. I want to honor the, the loss of that relationship, the loss of the dreams we had for our future together. I want to feel sadness. I want to understand hurt and disappointment and fill in the range of emotions. And so there is great debate in our field of psychology about how many emotions are there. Um, some say there's too many to count. It's kind of a fruitless uh, exercise. Some say, no, 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 we got to stick to the core seven that we've been researching. And then others are like, we think there's 256. So there's a range of debate about emotions. Um, I like to kind of make it super simple and think about four primary emotions, um, even more reduced than the seven primary. And the four primary are um, they, they feel orthogonally different, each one of them. And it, for me, they can hang on a scale. And I'll give you the four words here in a minute, the four emotions. But each, each uh, emotion I'm going to give you has a range. Like there's at least 10 to 15 words I could 
used to describe intensity of this core emotion that are fundamentally different than the other three. So anger, okay? So the most anger is, is rage. And then a five on the anger scale, let's just call it anger. And then a one on the anger scale would be like maybe annoyed, right? And then you all those hash marks, you would want to fill those in, okay? And then that will help you become more emotionally we're talking right now about emotional intelligence. This is part of emotional intelligence is knowing how to calibrate and name an emotion that you're feeling. So anger, then you do the same for sadness, you, and which is fundamentally different. I don't think anyone argues that sadness and anger are similar. They're very different. Um, happiness is a third scale, okay? Fundamentally different than sad and anger. And then um, fear. So if we just started with those four before we add you know, anything else to it, and we were able to do this kind of alone intellectual work to say, what is it? What's the words I use to describe a ten of that emotion? Like, what's the word you describe for a ten of fear? What would you say? Petrified. There you go. Right. Pretty common. Uh, where would you put pissed? Oh, right up there. Okay. Where do you put ticked? Lower down, definitely. Yes, and so yeah. So so it's just like calibrating those and figuring that out is good. It's a good bit of work now. And then if you've got a partner in life, whether it's your business partner or romantic partner, or whatever, that, that you go, okay, you fill out your scale, I'll fill out my scale. And then let's talk about it. Because when I say I'm pissed now that like, let's just know that that means nine on the scale of one to 10. And if I say like, I'm annoyed or what, what if your romantic partner says, oh my gosh, I use the word annoyed. And that's like an eight for me. And it's only a two for you. Oh my God, no wonder like you don't take me seriously or no wonder like I'm not. So that calibration is good work on relationships. And remember, nobody does it alone. It's a foundational principle that nobody does it alone. It's a first principle for me. So if we're going to get good at this thing of emotions, because that's what lights up at the edge when we're, we feel like we can't, pressure is this feeling like I need to think or do faster than I'm capable of. And if there's pressure with consequences, then we've got all these emotions that key up. Most people are not truly working in consequential environments. They're working in um, human-made consequence, which is, which is like, if I don't do well, I might not be liked. I might be rejected. I might be kicked out. I might not be asked back to the meeting. I might feel embarrassed, which are not like intimately, deeply consequential. They could be over time, okay, for sure. All right, so we need each other. So this is a great way to partner. Just build those four skills out. So what, what you end up doing there is just having kind of phase one of emotional intelligence calibration. Next is to be able to, when you're feeling an emotion, to name it, okay? So you're not trying to move it or shift it or stuff it. or Like you're just naming it like, oh, this is rage. Oh, this is pissed. Oh, this is, this is scared. And you just name it. Then you go to do, so you're feeling it, you name it, and then you watch it. And if you have that ability to practice this way when you're watching it, you, you can't watch it when your nails are on the edge of a cliff and you're about to you know, like fall a thousand feet. You, you're not watching your emotions there. That is a high-performing, high-speed environment. This is meant to do in something with lower speed. Okay, lower consequence. So you watch the emotion. This is where meditation again or um, 
uh, psychotherapy, talk therapy pays dividends, is that you just watch. Like, where does it want to move? What's it feel like? How heavy is it? What's the dimension and shape of this emotion? What do I want to say or do? What's my natural impulse? Talk it away? Stuff it down? Ignore it? Suck it up? Like, what do I do with it? And if you could just create a little bit more space and watch it, now you're practicing. That's practice. And then we take it to the next level, which is if we can share it with somebody else, because now we're, now we're in the game of vulnerability, you know? And so th- that's really cool. Then the next level is to try to put words to the emotion with the emotion. So saying, I'm really scared right now, or I, f- I feel very disappointed, or I'm hurt by something. Okay, that's, that's kind of one level. But the next level is when you're feeling all of that emotion to put words to it. Don't run. So you've already, you've already located it. You've named it. You've allowed it to breathe a little bit. Now you're practicing layering words on it. So in, in essence, you're holding a conversation with it. That's, that's sophisticated. Okay. That's a sophisticated thing. Then the next level is to practice your skills of your craft with the emotions. So athletes have known this and coaches have known this for years. That's why practice is so fast speed, intense, critical, like, you know, has that energy about it is because we need to help people practice in a highly emotional, um, sport is emotional, right? And so the best don't stuff their emotions down. They're working well with their emotions. There is a place where people have for years just stuffed the shit down. That's why 87% are broke, divorced, or a disaster by the time they leave the league is because they haven't worked with emotion. They're just trying to like ignore them. It doesn't work that way. Um, you can hold on for a bit, but before you know it, you just get kind of blown out the back. Um, so let me go back. Feel it, name it, watch it, share it, practice using words with the emotions, and then practice your skills that you're working on with those emotions. So that's kind of the the, the soup of the whole thing, if you will. Oh, I love it, man. And this idea, you, this, this conversation around emotions, it, it reminds me of something I heard you say uh, previously where you said, every great change starts with pain. I wonder if you could just explain that for our audience. Sure. This concept that pain is a, a bit of a short shorthand for suffering. And so... We all suffer. This is a very Zen Buddhist uh, idea here, but we're all suffering at some levels. I don't know anyone that's not or hasn't. And until we become intimate with that suffering and really feel that pain, we don't have the right internal resources to stay the course for change to happen. Change is always happening around us and it is happening inside of us so change uh, all things are impermanent right so change is happening but our patterns are fucking stubborn like there's a reason that our brain has said let's make oh you've done this you've written that your hand signature this many times let's make that thing automatic oh you've kept your elbow locked in right next to your rib cage and snap your wrist at a, at you know 11 o'clock a thousand times and while you're shooting a basketball, let's make that thing kind of automatic. Okay, so our habits are there for a reason. So it can free us up to solve 
problems of survival and opportunities for growth. So what I'm talking about is when we have hit our head against you know the concrete, if you will, and um, it's not until then do we really make the changes that are required for that freedom and growth and buoyancy and love and 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 sense of um, fullness that uh, I think most of us want. And I think you felt it um, based on your origin story that you shared, and um, I've I've got mine and. All of the greats that I've spent time with, they have grinded at some level, and then that's broken down for them, and they've reached a place where they're like, I need to move through this, and I will do the work. I will put in the work. I know how to work, and this is, this is emotional work. Okay, I'm in. Let's go. I just need to work better with my thoughts because emotions are part of the game. I'm in. I want to be a student of my, my own psychology. And I think until we, until we really have enough pain, we don't make those changes because they're hard to, to embrace. When I was thinking about this idea of pain and, and, and loss and how it plays into change, it also made me think about how it is a player in leading a good life ultimately. And, and there was this quote I found online. Um, I can't remember who said it, but I'll read it here. It said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These people have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding for life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. So with that quote in mind. Hey, mate, send that. will you send that to me? That's rad. Will you send that to me? That's rad. Th- those, those sound like, you know, people that know addiction, the people that know that deep struggle of not feeling in control anymore. And like people that have gone through the recovery process are my favorite people. And because there's an honesty, um, they're said, I'm, I'm fucking done white knuckling this thing. There's an honesty that they've met themselves and they've made the, the, the hard fought adjustments um, to be just a little bit better. And this is not wholesale. This is not like, this is like small incremental steps to being just a little bit better today. And sometimes we need to change our playmates and our play toys and our play pens. Like, you know, like sometimes we need to make wholesale changes, um, but that's not always required. But it is a requirement to feel that, that level of uh, emotional suffering that we're talking about. On... I believe it was an episode of your podcast. You were talking about how powerful a, a question it is. If you had six months left to live, how you would live those six months and, you know, asking yourself why you aren't living that way now. How important of a question do you think that is for people to ponder? It's a scary question to ponder, no doubt. But how important do you think it is to sort of think about concepts like that? Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a really good exercise. I think it's um, equally as important to um, practice the fragility of life. And, you know, impermanence is one of those those first principles for me as well, which is like, I, I, we, we talked about it a couple times already. Like, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little thing that I do as a way to practice impermanence. And I do it with all humans, um, is that I don't know if you and I will, will ever see each other or meet each other again. I, do, I don't know. The chances are probably pretty low, but you never know. 
Um, and so when I say goodbye, I'm going to have a little moment, which is like honoring that this might be the last time, only time that we get to meet each other and spend time with each other. It's just when I say goodbye, I like, I, I mean it. And it's not somber. It's like, it's like, this is awesome. Like, I'm wishing you the fucking best. And like, that, like, and thank you for like the, the even if it was like hard, a hard conversation, like goodbye, like I, I and I mean it. And um, so it's a way to practice impermanence for me. And I think that is a cool, deep, rich practice. But I would say it's not about the practice as much as it is lining up to first principles. So a bunch of loosely held practices is exhausting. And what am I supposed to do? Like first light, last light? Am I supposed to do dry sauna, wet, cold? Like, holy shit. Like there's so many practices that are available to us. We need principles. And those first principles need to guide the practices, sometimes for a season, sometimes for a lifetime. But go to the principle. And the, I think the heaviest, deepest work that we can do is to write down what are my first principles in life? What are the non-negotiables? What are the things right now that I am like, yeah, impermanence is one of them, okay? Uh, no one does it alone is another one for me. Uh, today's an opportunity for living masterpiece is another one. And so what are the first principles that you're working from? And then you develop a set of practices that are mini experiments and you see how they're lining up together to support the principle. And so if nobody does it alone, meaning that we need each other, then I better be really good with my relationships and relationships are emotional. So I better be really good with my own emotions so I can be great with the emotions of others because emotions, I'm sorry, relationships are emotional. So, so anyways, so do you see that, that kind of thinking, right? And if it's impermanence, then I need to practice a way to honor impermanence. And impermanence is really nice because it also means that um, decay is happening and growth is happening. It's changing. So how do I optimize growth? How do I honor decay? It, like, and I need a set of practices for both. Well, I have two final questions before we let these guys know where they can uh, pre-order the book and connect with you. The first one is on the topic we've been discussing so far. The second one is a question I ask every guest on the show, no matter what the topic. So the first question is, I want to set these guys up listening. I want them to leave here with a bit of motivation. So... There was a quote uh, of yours. You said it was recently on your podcast, actually brilliant. It said, the world is not set up for you to be great. That's your responsibility. So my question is how much of our ability to achieve greatness, achieve mastery, achieve high performance is in our own hands. Okay, cool. Thank you for bringing that idea back around. How much of mastery is in our own hands? how much of greatness is on our own hands. I got to pull those apart. We have to operationalize and define both of those to really answer the question. And so for me, I'm more interested in being my very best. I am less interested with the teams I work with and, the, and myself to be the best. And I'll tell you why. Um, there's a path of being my best and being, and, and the 12 of us on our team to be our very best day in and day out that that is so rare and so special and that it's likely that we're gonna find ourselves in a position on a world stage in a world-class way, because that is so rare. 
So I, I am totally cool um, not selling out to a, 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 an approach in life that I'm not in control of. I am not in control of being the best. I am not in control of being uh, one of the greatest. But I am in control of being on the path of mastery. And part of the path of mastery is mastery of self and craft. And if I can be very clear, this is, again, first principles at play. If I can be very clear about how I'm going to go about practicing mastery of self today and mastery of craft today, then I am putting myself, myself in a, um, a position of high leverage. If I'm trying, let me kind of flip out of that. If I'm trying to go out and help a team win, I'm out of, I'm out of leverage. If it's about winning, and I listen, I know what I'm saying is like not highly popular because winning pays bills. Winning keeps you in the game longer. Winning is um, a requirement to, uh, to, to continue the, the relationship. So I get the, and by the way, guys like you and I, like if we're helping a team win, the owner, even if we win or lose, like the owner is flying home in a jet, no problems. Guys like us, like I got to get my rowboat out you know, I get my oars oiled up and I, I'm, I'm back to rowing, you know, two man boat maybe. So like, so I, it's not like I'm naive and I, I don't get the dance here, but I want to be in a position with great leverage. And that great leverage is autonomy and agency and locus of control. I know those are all fancy psychological words. We could open them up if you want. Self-efficacy is efficacy means power. And there's five ways to develop a sense of efficacy. I, those are the ones. Those are the ones to triple down on. And if I can look at my teammates at Finding Mastery, and what we're doing is taking best practices, sports psychology, and crosswalking those into businesses and sharing with business leaders how to use this beautiful science for their, for their people to be their very best, if, whatever you're selling, services or widgets or whatever. Um, shit, that, it's totally possible. And that's the way I want to get after it. And so to answer your question in a very passionate way, 100%. And it is rare. And um, the fact that you asked that question gets me really excited because I think you're on it now, right? I don't think you were expecting me to say, oh no, you know, win at all costs. You know, like it's old. It's just old. We didn't know better. And we used to think, we used to think that well-being, that true high performance began where well-being ended. I can't believe that I thought that that was a first principle. I mean, <laughs> the hell was I thinking? What were we thinking? That was, a, that was an idea. Like, you're not even in the game unless you understand you've compromised some health. There's some truth to it, but it doesn't need to be that way. There is a better way, and we can thread that needle where we're, we're sitting right at that intersection of the psychology of high performance and the psychology of well-being, and we got practices that create um, excellence, mastery for the long haul, both of self and craft. And so that's what gets me fired up, mate. Well, Michael, the number one indicator of a good interview for, for in my experience is when I get answers and I'm instantly flooded with a hundred more questions. And I feel like I could talk to you all day <laughs> oh, long, but hopefully oh, I get the answers to those you, questions uh, when I read the first rule of mastery. But before we let everyone know oh, where they can you, find that, 
Um, my final question I ask every guest on the show right now for Dr. Michael Gervais, what makes life worth living? Oh, I, I, cool question. Like it's a very simple answer for me. And what makes life living is the space between and being able to live in that space between words and feelings and relationships. And like, it is the relationship with myself, the relationship with others, the relationship with mother earth and the relationship with robots that are coming. It's the space between and the relationships between my thoughts, words, and actions, your thoughts, words, and actions, you know, that, that promise and that um, purpose that we're lining up, it is the space between those two. And I'm borrowing that beautiful phrase from Viktor Frankl, Dr. Viktor Frankl, which, you know, there's a space between stimulus and response. And we're actually not sure that he actually said that. We're actually not sure that it's attributed to him, but like, I, I think he's so special. I'm happy to give him, you know, like all of that credit. He, he's amazing, right? So, so um, that's my answer. It's the space between, it's the relationships um, that make this whole thing work. And um, thanks for asking that. Amazing. Well, let's let these guys know where's the best place we can send everyone listening right now. They can check out the book. They can check out your work, your podcast, and connect with yourself. Okay. So findingmastery.com, you can get it all. Okay. So that's where the podcast, uh, you can find out more about the podcast, but you can find the Finding Mastery podcast anywhere podcasts are list, uh, listed or you listen to them. And then... Um, the First Rule of Mastery is the name of the book. You can find it anywhere. It's coming out November 7th. But if you go to findingmastery.com forward slash book, you will find a whole bundle of opportunities that we've created for people to help spur, like, please buy a couple in advance is the, is the effort there. And so we've got some really fun packages that I think that uh, you and your folks would enjoy. So findingmastery.com forward slash book, and then the Finding Mastery podcast. Amazing. I will make sure all that is linked in the description below. Dr. Michael Gervais, thank you so much for your time. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. I know my co-host Joe is a massive, massive fan and admirer of yours. So he was super excited about this as well. So it's been an absolute uh, honor to have you on kind. the show, my friend. Listen, I feel the regard and the respect and the kindness in your approach um, and an earnest honesty that you've had in this conversation. So um, thank you for creating the space for me to share things that um, I love thinking about and talking about. So I, I really appreciate it.